This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Sunday last week. Uh, so what we've done is we've, I've, I'm trying to do two moves this morning because we're doing this series uh, seven days that change the world. So we're going to touch into Gethsemane and the cross. So we're doing Thursday and Friday. Next Sunday we'll be back on track because it will be Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, but we're doing that. So I just want to, uh, so my title this morning is called The Cup and the Cry. Uh, I just want to ask you, we, a few weeks ago I asked you to turn to your neighbour and say, give me a characteristic of God. And what happened was, loving came right at the top. Loving came right at the top. Uh, just be honest, did anybody have the word just? Just, as in full of justice. Uh, uh, it's not really a characteristic of God that, you, that you're going to think about. You know, it's a pointless answer in that sense. You know, if you go on, uh, if they ever do that on pointless, so thank you, De- uh, thank you for, <laughs> for smiling now. Uh, if you go on pointless, you know, uh, that is a pointless answer. Nobody's going to come up with God is just. They're going to cut loving, caring. But God is just. And it's interesting that, that it's a, justice is a major theme in our society. Uh, um, justice is a big deal for us. Um, I mean, it's kind of hashtag justice, isn't it? Uh, so I don't know about... Um, me Too. Has anybody heard what Me Too's about? I mean, there's actually a thing at the moment called My Church, uh, uh, stuff that's kind of gone on in church, you know, about uh, justice for women who've been sexually uh, abused or harassed by men in power. Or uh, what about um, Black Lives Matter? Uh, it's one from the States. Uh, obviously, uh, a campaign, people would uh, take in and uh, also take a knee. Uh, it's all about justice. It's saying, look, there's something wrong about the, uh, the, the, the way that, that white and black uh, police officers uh, relate together. And so there's that. What about, um, okay, and then um, what about refugees welcome? You know, that's a, it's, it's a pretty important one. Barack Obama, other way, guys. Garrett Bar- <laughs> Barack Obama, you know, he had this refugees welcome as a response to how do we respond to the war in Syria? And I think it's complicated. So we kind of get that justice matters. We, we know it matters. You know, but, but the challenge is, how do you achieve justice? How do you achieve justice? I mean, is it enough for Harvey Weinstein just to lose his company? No, it's not. Thank you. I don't know who said that, but it's not. It's not enough. Would it be enough for President Assad to be brought before the, the War Crimes Commission in The Hague and charged with war crimes after the devastation that's happened to his country? Would that be enough? Now, how do you achieve justice that's, that's proportional? How do you achieve justice that's right? Either people say, oh, it's too lenient. There was a, a, a situation where some... Um, some troops were, were killed in friendly fire in the, in the Iraq war some years back. And, um, and what happened was the, there was a, a court case and the people that did the friendly fire were, were basically just dismissed and said, well, it's just one of those things. And people said, well, that's not right. 
you know, my husband has died in this. That felt too lenient. And then you, you, so you get these cries for, let's increase the sentence, let's increase the sentence. You know, if rape happens, surely it's not enough. 14 years, is that enough for rape? So we're dealing with this all the time. How do we achieve true justice? Um, in 2012, uh, uh, Charles Taylor, who's the, who was the then president of Liberia, or had been the president of Liberia in, in East Africa, and uh, if you know the history of Liberia, just the most horrendous crimes against his people, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison by the uh, War Crimes Commission in The Hague. And the judge, when he's sentencing uh, Charles Taylor, says this, The sentence today does not replace amputated limbs. It does not bring back those who were murdered. It does not heal the wounds of those who were raped or forced to become sexual slaves. Fifty years against that. Is that justice? No. How do we achieve justice? I mean, justice matters. You know, in one sense, there's times when we, when we, we should experience a sense of outrage. We should experience, when we see stuff, uh, a sense of outrage. I know that what happens is, when, when it's kind of stuff, the war in Syria, I, I, I've become almost numb to it. You know, I just another wrecked community, another devastated town, another family barrel bombed. I've just become quite immune to it, but I should be outraged think this is wrong you know for for 400 years in in the west western world you know american uh, african uh, slaves were taken over to the americas and, and nobody said a word about it nobody nobody bothered at all um you know where's the outrage i mean william wilberforce says mate you may choose to look the other way but you can never say you didn't know but for 400 years we did look the other way and then what happened is, when, when slavery was abolished, actually the people that received compensation were the slave owners. Is that justice? So hard to achieve justice. So hard to achieve justice. You know, the thing is, I suspect that we're pretty good at outrage when, when things go wrong to us. You know, if you cut someone up in the traffic, they can do outrage. You know, you did wrong to me, you cut me up in traffic, but yet big stuff happens in the world and we're indifferent. And certainly we don't want outrage if it's a sense of outrage about us, what we've done. Theologian Fleming Routledge, uh, whose book I'm, I'm going to read, I've been dipping into it, it's amazing, I'm going to read on my sabbatical, it's called Crucifixion by Fleming Routledge. It's a thick book, uh, so I need time off. It says, the truth is... Outrage against evil and injustice is first of all in the heart of God. God sees every situation of injustice and feels the outrage that we all feel, that, that we should feel about everything. God was outraged about the slave trade. He's outraged about abuse. He's outraged about those things. I, I wrote this. God sees every act of injustice and evil with withering clarity. His gaze reaches, sorry, a bit of politics here, Putin's Kremlin. His gaze reaches every trafficked sex worker in Cheltenham's uh, race week. His, His rage, his gaze sees every corrupt businessman's dealings and every exploited worker who cleans his office. God sees every moment of marital unfaithfulness, every secret internet search, every abused child, every moment of passive indifference to injustice. 
God hears every cry, sees every lie, and judges every evil thought and act. The thing is, we've struggled with this idea of justice because it's got this word attached to it that we don't like. And the Bible uses this word called wrath. The Bible calls God's desire for justice and righteousness. It's the same word. If you read the Bible, if you read the word justice or you read the word righteousness, it's the same word. We have two words for it in the Bible. It's one. In Greek and in Hebrew, it's the same word. Justice and righteousness are the same words. It says that the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. He does what's right. But when God feels outrage against injustice, the Bible calls that word wrath, and we don't like that word. Fleming Routledge again. In our day, we flee from the idea of the wrath of God. Yet in our haste, we might ask whether we have thought of the consequences of a belief in God who's not set against evil in all its forms. If for God were not outraged at evil in all its forms, such a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. And here's the rub, guys. Perhaps the reason we have trouble with the thought of wrath of God is that we ourselves are accomplices in this world of injustice and evil. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at justice and we're going to look at two steps quickly. We're going to look at how God does. That was a long introduction because I want you to just, when I say wrath, I don't want you to zone. I want you to think, I get it. This is outrage against injustice. This is outrage against evil. Outrage against everything that's wrong in the world. We've got two short readings. I have edited them for your uh, brevity, but please do read the uh, Easter story. Uh, We're reading from Mark. Let's read uh, the first step in uh, Gethsemane. Mark 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. That's Jesus and his disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John with him, that's his three, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed, if the hour might pass from him, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, your will be done. Jesus is the source of this information. The disciples were at a distance, the disciples were, were asleep. Jesus has told, shared this information with, with, with the, the disciples and they have written it down. He, he shares this for a reason because he wants us to have an understanding of what's going on here in the garden. So we go to this place called Gethsemane, this olive grove, and we find Jesus praying. And it says, uh, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, when, when the Bible says troubled, it sounds like, mm, you know, I've lost my keys. I, I, I'm, doing, I'm finding I'm losing stuff. So I, I, I searched the whole house for a pair of new tr- uh, Converse All-Stars that I bought. And actually, I then found them on the, uh, on the rack where they always are. But I was troubled. I was blaming Naomi. I was blaming the world. I was blaming everything. I was, I was troubled. You know, and we get stressed about little things. This is not Jesus getting stressed about something pathetic. This is something 
uh, that actually the word trouble doesn't really do justice for. Um, the, the, the word troubled and sorrowful talk about, uh, it translated in other versions as horror, deep alarm, dismay, shuddering terror, and anguish. See, Jesus then, as it were, went away to pray and began to be gripped by a shuddering terror, a consuming horror, a crushing anguish, and was in tormented, crushing agony, and was in tormented anguish. Jesus is on the ground, falling to the ground, and praying to his Father in this incredible state of anguish. This is a Jesus we're unfamiliar with. That he's always been authoritative and fearless. He's always been unfailingly assured. You know, he weeps, yes, at the, at the grave of his friend, but he's not a chicken. He's not scared. You know, in the brief moments between the, 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 the Last Supper and his, in his trial, he, he goes to the garden to find some solitude with his father, but yet he's gripped with this terror. He's gripped with this consuming horror. He's gripped with this crushing agony, this tormented anguish. And he prays to his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Going a little farther, he staggers and falls to the ground. Luke, the doctor, uh, recalls that he sweat great drops of blood. He's sweating profusely drops of blood. Uh, Dr. Google says this about that. It says, this is such a rare phenomenon associated with a high degree of psychological stress. Apparently, with distress of this magnitude, a chemical is released that breaks down the, cap uh, the capillaries in the sweat glands. As a result, blood is released into the sweat gland and sweat comes out tinged with blood. Jesus is in this grip of this anxiety, this, this, this terror that's getting hold of him. It's almost like he's experiencing something like a heart attack, crushing pain, staggering weakness, profuse sweating. Why? It's not the physical suffering that he's, he's scared of. It's not the mental anguish that he's scared of, that he's feeling. No, he's not become a coward in that moment. But he's looking at something that he calls the cup. It's the cup. Jesus lays prostrate on the ground, unable to stand. You can overhear the intimacy of his praying as he's forcing out the words, Abba, my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. May this cup be taken from me. Yet, not what I will, but you be done. Let's just bracket that for a moment. What's not happening here is it's, this is not a, dis a battle of wills in God. This is not the Father God the Father and God the Son, eternal Father and Son, having a battle of wills. I want to do this, says God, and you're going to be, and I'm going to put my, uh, uh, put my justice on you, and you're the unwilling victim. No, that's not what's happening. Steve Chalk, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. This is, this is Jesus in his humanity, fully God, fully man, two natures, but yet this is God, it, this is Jesus in his humanity. This is Jesus identifying with you. Jesus is begging, 
if it's possible to be spared the drinking of the contents of this cup. Now Jesus doesn't invent the word cup for dramatic impact. He knows his Bible. The cup in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's outrage. The symbol of God's desire to do right where injustice and evil have brought wrong. This is his settled determination to bring justice to the earth. The imagery is of wine and a wine press. Isaiah 51 verse uh, 1 uh, says, Arise, wake up, wake up, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. That's his desire to do justice. You have drained its dregs, the goblet, the goblet that makes men stagger. In other words, what, what I'm saying is, is when, the, when, Israel, when Jerusalem was, was invaded and, and they were dragged into exile, it was almost like they've, they've, they've suffered the justice of God. That's what he's saying. But the problem, as I said, with wrath is that, that we don't see it as justice. That if, you said I'm a, if, if Naomi said to me, you're a wrathful husband, you'd think, well, here's this guy who can't control his anger. He's prone to sudden... Actually, I better not look at her because it might be too true. Um, sudden outbursts, you know. <laughs> sudden outbursts of anger. that he, he, He's liable to fly off the handle at any moment. It's wrath, we feel, is the overflow of, of, of a flawed character. But actually, God is not a capricious and angry God. He's not liable to fly off the handle at any moment. He's not liable to, to do things hastily. He's not liable just to suddenly decide to be furiously angry with you. You know, joke, jokes about lightning bolts from heaven um, are wrong. It doesn't, it's not like that. But God is just. You've got to get that. God is just. God's justice is where we get our desire for justice. Something's wrong with the world and it needs to be put right. God rightly feels the righteous indignation about injustice and evil. He feels outrage and anger when wrong needs to be put a stop to and injustice demands to be put right. Perhaps if you struggle with that metaphor, maybe you get this metaphor. That I don't know if any of you uh, uh, have had uh, family members or even yourself have had cancer. And, and, and what happens is that the, 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 the cancer is identified. And the, the discussion takes place. The, the, the doctor comes out and, and you know, I don't know how they phrase it. I don't know how they do that day after day. I don't know how these, these cancer doctors do that. But they come out and say, this is life-threatening. There's a cancer inside and we need to do something about it. We need to cut it out. We need to, to, black, to blitz it with, with nuclear kind of bomb. We need to we put radiation in it. We, we need to, to chemically get rid of this. We need to take the, the knife, the surgeon's knife, and remove this cancer and put it outside the body. When the surgeon takes the knife to a cancer, nobody says, well, that's outrageous. What are you doing cutting me up? You say, get this thing out. Sin, if left untreated, 
injustice of left untreated is going to destroy the world. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy the world. And God has determined that he's not going to leave it untreated. People say, what about suffering? Why doesn't God do something? It's a cry for justice. Like a cancer doctor doing the best he can, God's outrage is an expression of his goodness. His righteous justice, yes, his love. When we are opposed to God's goodness and love, we experience them as wrath, as chemotherapy into our evil. This is the cup that, God's, that Jesus is talking about. The cup is God's declaration that justice matters. Let's pick up another Bible verse, tw- uh, Psalm 75 verse 8. It says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked, all the unjust of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The idea of, 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 of grapes is an interesting one because it's almost as if... I mean, I mean there's a film, isn't there? A, a, a film called The Grapes of Wrath. Um, uh, but actually this idea of, 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 of grapes is an interesting one because what happens is grapes take moisture and stuff from the earth and store it up. And then what happens is the grapes are squeezed or the grapes are tread in a wine press and, 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 and what's stored up is released. And there's, there's this idea that, that God's, God is, is almost like gathering up all the cries for justice in the earth, or is gathering those up and storing them. Storing them for a moment when he's going to make it right. Storing them for a moment when he's going to act. So when we see evil and injustice going unpunished, it's not because God doesn't care. It's because he's actually storing it up. He's storing it up like, like, like wine in a grape. God's justice is delayed because, as the Bible says, he's gracious and compassionate, slow, slow to anger, and rich in love. Why doesn't God act immediately? Why does he take and seize injustice? He doesn't act immediately. Why does he, he lets it, he, he says justice will happen and he stores it up for a season? The Bible gives us some reasons why he does that. Romans 3 says, God in his justice and forbearance Justice and patience had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's, but there's going to be justice and he's storing it up. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish or to be cast outside. That, that's that word. It's almost take it outside. But come to repentance. Why doesn't God deal with do justice straight away? He's, he's given the perpetrators of injustice time to repent. He's given, the, he's given the abusive man time to repent. He's given the, the war crime president time to repent. He's given the adulterer time to repent. If God's justice acts too swiftly, who could stand? If every time we did something wrong, God gave us the justice we deserved, there's none of us be here. God is slow to anger, rich in love. But there is, 
to be a release of divine justice. There is to be a, a, a release of his outrage against evil. And, and then the Bible talks about it as treading the wine press. I mean, I'd have loved, I mean, there was so much of this sermon ended up on the cutting room floor, but I'd love to have developed that term for you. There's a, a great line in, in, in Isaiah. It says, you know, who is this coming out of enemy territory? He's robed, stained with blood. I've tread the wine press of God's judgment and overcome. It's Jesus. There's a sense where justice is stored up almost in these grapes, and, but it is going to be released. There is going to be a time of God's justice where the, the unjust will drink the cup, will drink God's justice. Jesus knows that he's agreed with his Father to identify with humanity, to identify with us, to become a man. But he's also agreed that he would identify with us as we are evil. Paul says he'd take the form of sinful flesh, yet he had no sin. Paul writes it elsewhere, he says he would become sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's almost as if that, that, that Jesus came to identify with us in our injustice and our sinned against. And he comes to identify with everybody who, who deserves justice. But Jesus stares into the contents of this cup that he's contemplating, the stuff that's made him fall to the ground and sees the intense the intensity of God's justice against evil and he sees every single person that's ever been sinned against and feels this needs to be done right, something needs to be done and he feels every single moment of injustice and evil and sin and he feels it's all the justice for that squeezed out into this cup and he knows that it's been given for him to drink. The justice that's due to all of ours has been squeezed out into this cup and Jesus says, I'm going to drink it. Abba, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Is there any other alternative? Is there another way that God could achieve, achieve true justice? Is there something else? Could, what about this? Maybe God could say, actually, I'll just let you off. I'll just let you off. Imagine if you're a, a judge in the Old Bailey. Somebody comes before you in a, in a court case, and it's a horrendous court case of abuse. And you just say, Actually, I just forgive you. I'll just let you off. That's not justice, is it? It's not justice. We all think, I hear it on the radio all the time, oh, God's, in, God's tolerant, he just forgives. And he does. But what about justice? What is he going to do with every cry of every suffering person in Aleppo? What's he going to do with that? It's not just enough to say forgive. It's not justice for the judge of all the world to forgive and forget. The truth is for any forgiveness to be real and justice to be done wrong has to be made right, a cost has to be paid, and evil must be dealt a crushing blow. Jesus goes and says, is there another way? 
Father, if it's possible, there must be another way. How can we forgive these people? How can we forgive the, the, the people that we love when there's such injustice? Is there another way? And heaven is silent. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other way for justice to be done and forgiveness secured. If the, if the cup of God's justice remained unemptied, you could not be forgiven. Jesus prays, knowing his hour has come, he says, Arise, my betrayer is here. This is it now. The cup visualised is going to become the cup realised. Let's just read quickly. I, I, I'm near the end, uh, but let's, uh, let's read quickly Mark 15. Uh, selected verses from Mark 15. It says, And they crucified him. Do read the Easter story, the, the build-up to the Easter story. Uh, and it's interesting because the, the Gospel writers don't really go much into the physical agony uh, of crucifixion. They talk about him being mocked and him being whipped and scourged, and it just says, and they crucified him. They don't talk about the nails driven into the hands and feet. They don't talk about the, 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 the dislocation of the bones. The, they don't talk about the crushing suffocation of the heart bursting within. They don't talk about that. They just say they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning, this is Friday, when they crucified him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamak Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus identifies with every suffering person. If you've been a victim of evil or injustice, or if you have suffered, he identifies with you. The King of Glory becomes one with the oppressed. He becomes identified with the unjustly accused. He stands with the falsely imprisoned, the punitively tortured, the violently abused. He stands with the rejected, the neglected, the exploited, the robbed, the weak. On the cross, Jesus willingly is made powerless. He's thirsty and naked and alone. He's one with every victim of injustice and evil. It says in that, there's a, a parable it tells about sheep and, sheep and goats, and it says, whatever you've done to the least of these, You've done it to me. Every injustice that we have done, we've done it to him. Because he took the cup of the justice that I deserve and drinks it down. Joshua Butler in his book, Skeletons in God's Cupboard, writes this. So many great quotes from there. You've just got one. It says this, On the cross, Jesus soaks, I like that word, soaks the suffering, shame and evil of the world into himself, absorbing its destructive power. It's almost like Jesus is the, is the grape that's 
that just absorbs the, the justice of God, the justice that the world is due into himself, and then he's crushed. Jesus drinks the cup. Jesus becomes sin. Jesus feels the surgical knife of God's justice cutting the cancer of sin of us, of all of us. And he is cast outside God's good creation. The judge is judged. The just one is cut off from the life of God, receiving the justice due the unjust. The judge is judged. The just one cut off, receiving the justice due the unjust. The crushing darkness envelops Jesus. Sin drags him down into the empty void of separation from God. Jesus treads the winepress of the stored-up justice of God and descends into the darkness of death. He experiences hell. But he experiences the hell from which he delivers us. He experiences the hell from which he delivers us. He's gripped by a shuddering terror, a consuming horror, a crushing agony, a tormented anguish as hell envelops him. Separated from his father, he cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamak Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cup he drank was my cup and your cup. Yet in eternity he agreed to drink it. In love for you he agreed to drink it. In justice, in a sense of justice he agreed to drink it. Isaiah, uh, Jesus loves you so much that it says in Isaiah, remember 51 says, I've put in the hand of Jerusalem this foaming goblet. Isaiah 51 verse 22 says this, See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink. It's amazing. Put your own words. See, God... See, I have taken out of your hand Howard Kellett. The cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my justice, Howard, you'll never need to drink. It's like, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. He's drunk it down. He's drunk the, the grapes of wrath, squeezed into a cup. He's drunk it down, so I don't need to. Jesus had every right to, in the garden, every right in the cross to say, this is your cup, Howard. You drink it. This is your cup for your injustice, for your anger, for your simmering frustration. This is your cup for your lust, for your greed, for your pride. This is what your life has earned stored up in grapes and squeezed out. This is what you deserve. Now you drink it. 
But what love in his agony. What love in his agony. The perfect, sinless Son of God freely takes the cup and in love drinks it down on the cross for six hours. That is what justice required. That's what my sin required. He drank it, all of it. He drank it to the dregs, leaving not one drop. So the goblet of God's righteous judgment I'll never need to drink. Paul puts it like this. Actually, I've got the wrong verse, but it's the right place in the Bible. (laughs) Paul puts it like this. God put forward Jesus as the satisfier of divine justice or righteousness, that he might be just, he's going to do what's right, and the justifier, the forgiver of those who put their trust in him. It feels heavy. It feels heavy, but it should be good news. It only feels heavy if you think, I don't receive, I don't identify with any of that. It's fine, I see injustice in that bad guy, but I don't see it in myself. It's heavy because of that. But actually, if you understand what you're really like, if you look into the mirror and find what you're really like, you know that actually you are not innocent. But the, the, the story ends with another cup. There's something about one big cup, yeah? But there's something here about grapes and stuff. There's something here about that Jesus is going to take this cup and and drink it down. Actually, you think, well, is that the cup that's been offered here? Is that the cup that's been offered here, the the cup of God's justice, that we treat you justly for all the things you've done? No, 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 there's another cup here. There's another cup. Let's finish with this. Today, the risen Jesus, the one who's defeated sin and death, the one who's taken justice into himself and thrown it out of the world into hell, The risen Jesus with nail-scarred hands holds out another cup. And it's called the cup of life. It's called the cup of salvation. This is what is being offered right now. Psalm 116, 12 says, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Can you? No. You cannot. Coming to church, serving, giving you money, being a nice person, trying your best, it's not going to repay the Lord. No, he drunk the cup. It's irrepayable. I will repay. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? The answer is you cannot. How can you respond to what Jesus has done on the cross with the cup and the crisis? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. He's saying, here, this is what we're doing. We're saying, I'm going to, here's the cup of life. Of Jesus has given it for you. He's taken every injustice, everything that happened in the world. I know we think so individualistically and think it's just about me, but this is about the transformation of a world, a world that's going to be made you. And he says, come on now. Come take. Come take. Come take the cup of salvation. Come take the cup of life. All that Jesus asks as you come is, you say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my way, not my justice, not my view of how the world's going to run, but your way. Your will be done. 
That's the only qualification. You come and say, how can I repay God for what he's done? I cannot. I can't do it. But I will take the cup of salvation and I'll call on his name and say, Jesus, it's you alone. It's you alone I love. That's what's happening on the cross. And I know it's not a popular topic, but actually it's such a brilliant topic. The world is going to be made new. I could have done a whole series on this. You could tell, can't you? God's going to make the world right. Every sex traffic woman, God's going to make that right. Every abused child, God's going to make that right. Every rejected wife or husband, God's going to make that right. Everyone in poverty and exploitation, God's going to make that right. God's going to make it right in you. He offers you the cup of life. You should come run in in a minute. I know you won't because you do it as we always done it. <laughs> and you just say, how can I repay you? I'll just drink and say thank you, God, for what you have done. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.